You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast. Midweek debrief number 178. And I'm the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention today. It's valuable to me, and so I hope that this is time well spent for you. Before we dive into today and the reading and the discussion, I uh, found all my numbers out uh, for the end of the year, all my podcast numbers, and I was more than shocked, actually, which is why I bring it up to say thank you and how grateful I am to all of you who listen to the podcast and give me feedback and support the podcast by sharing each episode with friends and family and others. I function under the assumption that I have around 250 to 300 listeners per episode, that this is a small, modest podcast. Like I've said before, I'm just sitting in my office in the middle of nowhere, Minnesota, talking into a microphone, staring at a wall, sharing my thoughts and the things that I'm reading or thinking about with whoever's listening out there in the ether. That was my assumption. And then I got my Spotify numbers back. And the thing is, Spotify is the second most listened to platform as far as my podcast goes. Apple Podcasts is number one. It's like twice as many people listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts as on Spotify. But I don't get Apple Podcast numbers. So I can only guess at how many people listen on Apple Podcasts, which again, I assumed was uh, very few people. And then I got my Spotify numbers back last week. And this year alone, I have 94% increase in listeners. India is the number two country for listeners. So shout out to everyone in India who listens to the podcast, whoever and wherever you are in India. Welcome. Thank you. It's pretty amazing. 39% of you shared the podcast directly with somebody else. So again, if it wasn't for you sharing links to the podcast and introducing the podcast to other people, it would not have grown and I wouldn't have an increase of 94% in new listeners this year alone. So thank you for that. That's remarkable. And because so many people shared the podcast, my podcast grew by 202% this year, the most it's ever grown in the three or four years that I've been doing this. And so that's 106% increase in followers on Spotify this year. And like I said, we're nearly at a thousand followers on Spotify. And I think at the beginning of the summer in May, June, I was around 300 to 400. So again, that's amazing. Thank you for everybody who follows me on Spotify, on Apple podcast, wherever you listen to this show. And here's the thing for me then, here's the real clincher. Like I said, I thought maybe 250 or 300 people listen to this podcast. <laughs> well, it turns out that 2,602 of you have me in your top 10 podcasts that you regularly listen to. And another 1,488 of you have me in their top five and 245 have me as their number one podcast that they listen to. So taking those metrics and adding them to the metrics of Apple podcast, I have between five and 7,000 listeners on the conservative side. <laughs> so it's not 250 to three, it's, it's around 7,000 people at least. And so to all of you who listen to the podcast, uh, that's amazing. And I am stunned and like I said, extremely grateful that any of you bother to listen to this podcast at all. 
and that there are people that actually get value from this and benefit from this. So thank you. Thank you from the very, the very most grateful parts of my heart. Thank you for listening to the podcast, sharing the podcast, following the podcast, giving me feedback. It's amazing. It's amazing to know that all the work that I put into preparing and the resources that I gather and the energy and the effort that I put into these episodes is of value. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate you greatly for what you do then for the podcast. And so with that, as much as I want to say, okay, now all 7,000 plus of you go and go to uh, Anchor FM, uh, Warrior Priest Podcast, click that financial support button and pledge a dollar a month to me. Because if all of you did that, I wouldn't have to worry about not having any retirement plan. So (laughs) that'd be fantastic. So if all of you listening want to go to Anchor FM, click the support button, pledge a dollar a month to the podcast, all that money goes back into the show. And uh, yeah, I could actually start turning these around and uh, actually making money off the show, which would be fantastic. Because I'm not joking, I literally have no retirement plan because the congregation that I serve in order to be here, in order to serve this congregation, they're a small church and they don't have a lot of resources. And so some of the things that I had to sacrifice to serve them was retirement. I have to come up with my own healthcare and dental for my family. And that's a sacrifice that my wife and I are more than glad to make. But it also means then that when I do things like this podcast, writing my books, my articles, and all the other things, all the other projects that I do, that's literally to supplement my my income, to supplement all the things that I need to provide for my family for and for the future. And so one of the reasons that I ask then for you to support the podcast, that's a part of it, is that everything comes out of my pocket, everything goes back into my projects. And I don't make any profit off of any of these things that I'm doing. And so if you want to support the podcast, if you want to help me out, like I said, a dollar, that's all, right? Again, if, if five to 7,000 listeners all pledged a dollar today, um, I could start, you know, investing in better hardware, uh, better software. I could actually buy more resources and, and get more resources that I would love to have to use for this show and for other things that I do. And so if you want to wish me a Merry Christmas, do that. Pledge a dollar a month. Warrior Priest at Anchor FM. Click the support button. That being said, I finally got a hold of the director's cut of Beowulf. (laughs) And what I mean by that is there is a Norton critical edition of the Seamus Heaney translation, verse translation of Beowulf. Why that matters is it's not just a translation. It's not just the authoritative text, but it also has contexts, which are things like Genesis 4, 1 through 16, Cain and Abel, the Hall Feasts and the Queen, um, Gretir the Strong and the Troll Woman, Sigamund's Exploits, and so on. It's got all of these essays in it, these stories that form the foundation for the Beowulf story. And more than that then, it also contains criticism Essays by Tolkien, Mary Jane Osborne, Jane Chance, Robert Frank, Fred C. Robinson, and others, in which they discuss the archaeology of Beowulf, the philosopher-poet Seamus Heaney and his translation. What else? We have Tolkien, which we're going to read today, The Monsters and Their Critics, The Great Feud, Scriptural History and the Strife in Beowulf, The Structural Unity of Beowulf, The Problem of Grendel's Mother, and so on and so forth. And that's why I call it the director's cut. It's kind of like the director's cut 
of the Lord of the Rings. If you want to watch 20 plus hours of commentary and behind the scenes interviews and the making of, you get the director's cut of the Lord of the Rings because it's got everything. But if you're just satisfied with watching the movies, that's cool too. But, you know, watch the theatrical version of the movie. It's fine. It's six hours of your life versus nine plus. But for those of us who are nerds for Beowulf and for Anglo-Saxon poetry, this is the book. And I got the last copy on Amazon, ironically, or coincidentally, but I'm sure it'll be back in stock. But it's called the second Norton Critical Edition of Beowulf, a verse translation, credited to Seamus Heaney. So most people are famous, famous, are familiar with Seamus Heaney's translation, but this is his translation plus. And so if you're into Beowulf, if you're into Anglo-Saxon epic poems and legends and myths, if you want to dig into the minutia of Beowulf and 6th through 11th century Anglo-Saxon poetry and, and myth and legend and the Norse um, connection there, I highly recommend the second critical edition of Beowulf. But that being said, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to dive into the monsters and the critics by Tolkien because it's still seen as a benchmark essay. And something that I was doing the other day is that I discovered that the philosopher uh, Max Weber, he wrote a very, very famous and influential essay that no one's read. <laughs> Most of us have forgotten it. And yet when you read it, and I won't dive too deep into it because it's heady stuff and it's, maybe I'll read it in the future when I've had more time to digest it and break it down and outline it. But in this essay, Max Weber calls for the disenchantment of society, the unmagicking of culture. And what Weber does is he essentially argues, <clears throat> and I'm paraphrasing wildly here, so take that for what it's worth. Like I said, I got to dive deeper into this essay. But what Weber calls for is essentially for us to throw off the cloak of superstition that, in his opinion, really held back pre-modern people. And by superstition, he means everything from belief in God to metaphysics to myths, legends, folk tales, all of it. It's all superstitious nonsense. And we need to look to the future. We need to rely on science and progress and evolution and realize that we are more progressed. We are more advanced than those old superstitious people with their nonsense beliefs and values informed by their beliefs. And so Weber calls for the disenchantment of the world. Throw off the superstition. Throw off metaphysics. Stop worrying about myths and legends. They don't serve any purpose other than to delude us and to obscure our perception of reality. And like I said, it was extremely influential and an extremely powerful essay at the time it was published. And if you don't believe me, as I've discussed in the last three episodes, just start talking to friends, especially this time of year and during Advent leading up to Christmas, start talking to friends and family about the myths and the legends and the folk tales that make up Christmas. Not just Christian celebration of Christmas, but just Christmas in general. <clears throat> the wreath, the Yule log, the stockings, the mistletoe, the tree, the presents, all of it. Santa Claus, the elves, and so on. See how excited people are to discuss myths and legends and folktales. 
see how invested they are in metaphysics versus treating it as just another holiday that is about buying things, maybe getting together with friends and family, sharing a laugh, having a drink or two, maybe a meal, exchanging presents. But it's all so pedestrian now. It's pedantic. Buy the book. There's no wonder to Christmas. There's no anticipation for Advent. It's just a time to get ready for Christmas. Buy your presents. Get, make sure you have all the food that you need for the, for the dinner and so on. Make sure you get the time off. But it's not a time of wonder. It's not a time of enchantment. And the reason then that we have seen the disenchantment, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, and other holidays, is directly related to, you can trace this back to Max Weber's essay about the disenchanting of society. And so I think, although there's no direct reference that I've found yet, and if you are uh, a reader of Tolkien, please uh, message me and let me know if he ever does refer to Weber directly. But I do find it rather coincidental that at the almost exact same time that Weber publishes this essay, which I think is the, in the early 1930s, we also then, shortly after that, within a decade of that, start to hear Tolkien talk about re-enchanting the world. And I think it's because he is responding to Weber and this movement to disenchant the world that is influenced by Weber's essay. And when I first read that in Tolkien about re-enchanting the world, and I talked about this in previous episodes most recently, I wondered if it wasn't just the effect of World War I on people like Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, and others. Obviously, Max Weber was profoundly influenced by that, being German. But I think that what we have in Tolkien and C.S. Lewis is a pushback to say progress is a monster. Modernity is a monster. In fact, Tolkien's critique of modernity comes at the very end of The Lord of the Rings, not in the movie, but in the books. Because when the hobbits return to the Shire, it's been industrialized. It's no longer the Shire. It's no longer pastoral. It's no longer Edenic, but rather it's been industrialized and it's been turned into essentially a factory town to supply armament and other necessities to the armies of Sauron. Saruman has essentially conquered the Shire and converted it into a military industrial factory town. And that's kind of the end of the Lord of the Rings is the hobbits have to fight and drive out the industrialists, the forces of Saruman. And as much as is possible, then restore the Shire to its Edenic state, which of course, after it's been despoiled and perverted, is impossible. And Tolkien's point, I think, at the end of The Lord of the Rings then is to say, it's not enough just to win the war. We have to go home. And when we go home and we discover the real, on-the-ground, day-to-day consequences of the conflict... There's no going back. There's no return to innocence. And therefore, we have to do the best we can rebuilding what's been lost. But we also have to accept that the consequence of war is that we are all changed irrevocably. And no matter how long after the war, we enjoy a time of peace, rebuilding, and all that goes along with it. There's something that we lost in the war and that we can never get back. 
And for Tolkien, it's the fact that they've all been touched by the darkness. And so even after the darkness has been defeated, because it has touched each of us, we are all then tainted in some small or great way by that darkness. And no matter how much we strive to return to a time of innocence, a time of pure, idyllic hope, that is impossible. Because the specter then, the specter of darkness, the specter of war, it's always there in the back of our minds. It affects everything we do from that point on. Because we know it's possible now for darkness to creep in. We know it's possible for evil to invade our lives. And if it happened then, it can happen again in the future. And when we forget that, that is exactly the moment when darkness creeps back in again. You see this in Beowulf with Grendel. You see this in current society in the United States in particular. It's the old, you know, hard times make good men, good men, you know, so on and so forth. And as a consequence, we don't care about myth and legend, which warn us, this happened, it can happen again. And this is how it happened to us. This is how we responded. And this is the aftermath. Because in the end, the thing that the Anglo-Saxons and the Norse writers gave to us was two things. It's at the root of all of their stories. It's at the root of all of Tolkien's work. One is courage in the face of the darkness, in the face of the dragon, the evil. And the other is will. The will that is the wanting to keep moving forward, to keep advancing, to keep building, to keep creating, to keep striving to build a better clan, a better village, a better society for the next generation. And so courage and will are rife in Tolkien's works, as in Lewis, actually, because they picked that up from the Anglo-Saxons and the Norse peoples, and they paid it forward. And I think what you see in the United States today then, and I don't think it's a coincidence, is a lack of courage, moral courage in particular, but also spiritual courage, to believe in that which seems absurd, given all that's happening in front of our faces, but not just courage then, but also the will to strive, the will to strive for excellence, the will to strive to create and to innovate and to build up and to, cur to encourage others to make the world a better place for our children and our children's children on down the line. And when you lose those two things, courage and will, the darkness has won, according to the old writers and according to Lewis and Tolkien. And so when Tolkien writes Beowulf, the Monsters, and the Critics, I think the subtext of the whole essay is he's responding to Max Weber. And he's saying to Weber, we actually need those myths and legends. We need those what you call superstitions, which I would call faith. We need those things. Why? Well, this is the root of why I'm devoting so much time during Advent and Christmas to the whole matter of myth, symbol, story, legend. It may seem like I am regressing to a childlike state, but I'm not. What I'm trying to do as much as I can in my own way is to express to you who listen, those stories communicate reality. 
They're not children's tales. They're not fictional. I covered this two or three episodes ago when I read Tolkien. What they're doing is they're saying this is reality, but our minds are so limited, so finite, our imagination so feeble, that in order to understand these really big picture topics that are cosmic in size, we're going to reduce them into little bite-sized pieces, little caramels of truth that communicate this is a huge issue, a huge topic. So just chew on this for a little bit. And in doing that, it not only says to us, this is your past, this is where you come from, but also this is your future, this is where you're going. Because ultimately all of these stories are inculcating hope. And it's hope in the midst of struggle and affliction. It's hope in the midst of suffering and illness and death and darkness and decay. And so knowing where we come from and knowing where we're going, having a clear picture of both directions, it actually sets us free in the present tense then to stop worrying about what our place is in the world. Why am I here? What am I supposed to do today with the time that's been given to me? How does this contribute to the future? What's around the next corner and so on? And I think for all of us, the reason that when we were children, we grasp onto these things is the fact that we think in picture. We don't think in text. And so as much as typography has been vital for the development of Western civilization, we think in imagery. That's why poets, for example, and musicians, or songwriters, can affect an entire nation with their words, so long as they understand that words are symbols that represent ideas, and that those words then have to paint pictures for the person who reads or hears them. That's why a good translation and a great translation are so distinguishable from a bad translation. What do I mean? A bad translation is wooden. It doesn't sing. It doesn't flow. It doesn't feel good in the mouth and on your tongue. It doesn't grab a hold of your ear and hold its attention. It's just a translation. But a good translation, it gets you tingly because it starts to get you excited. It stirs up your imagination. It gets a hold of your ear and it holds it. And a great translation of a text, hmm, that'll make you want to build a house. That'll make you want to travel to the other side of the world. That will make you sacrifice your life for other people. That's the power of language when it's wielded properly. But when it's wielded improperly, it can do the opposite. It can destroy the world. For example, this morning I was reading a, a brief piece arguing that the whole reason that Joe Biden was put into the Oval Office was so that the dismantling of the United States and the selling off of the United States to foreign powers could be dismissed as the incompetence of a leader suffering from dementia. And I thought that was a very astute observation because especially amongst my friends who argue back and forth politics, one day Joe Biden is the author of everything that is evil and wrong and vile in this country. Did you see what Joe Biden did? Did you see what Joe Biden said? But then the very next day, they'll say, he's got Alzheimer's, he's not in control, he's just a puppet. And I ask both sides, Republicans and Democrats, 
Which is it? Is he a mastermind or is he out of his mind? Because from day to day, you keep switching back and forth. And I think this is a very unthoughtful and a very controlled way of thinking. Rather than step back and ask, have we seen this before? Are there any stories from our past that can help us understand this argument in the present? Because, of course, there are numerous stories, both myths, legends, and folktales, about incompetent leaders, puppet governments, and so on. But we don't do that. We are trapped in this infinite present where there is no past and there is no future. There is just now. And that is by design. It's not an accident. Again, read. This has happened before many, many times. And so the reason that I am so invested in symbolism and asking questions about the meaning of things, not just what is said, but the symbolism of words, what they represent, the picture that they're painting and the image that they want us to staple to our brain and our imaginations. <clears throat> this is the thing then that forms our opinions. It influences our thoughts and our behavior. It controls our language. And therefore, we become slaves to people who do understand the power of symbol and how to use it against us. And so rather than being a kind of regression to childhood and to say, well, let's just hide in these old stories so that we don't have to deal with reality, it's actually the complete opposite. These old stories expose us to reality. And they define reality and explain reality to us in a way that our minds can get a hold of because they're painting word pictures for us. And the word pictures that they paint are about the big picture, about reality, and about the fact that as much as we want to say that we are progressive, that we are evolved, you read the old stories and you realize we're not progressive at all. We haven't evolved at all. The technology has changed. We've innovated the technology, but as far as our brains evolving or us being somehow better equipped to deal with reality and life in the world than our ancestors, that's nonsense. It just is. Even the revisionist history that we have been sold for the past 80 plus years has conditioned us to think of the past as what? Well, it's a bunch of Neanderthals living in caves, isn't it? It's the slow progression, the slow evolution of people over time so that our children have a cosmology that is extremely limited. It's so narrow as to not even be noticeable. And as far as their worldview, that's entirely conditioned by what's coming out of their screens, the temples that they worship in now. And so when I say Neanderthal or dinosaur, well, kids know all about that because they learn that in school and they're taught that as if it's fact. But if I start talking about giants and dragons, if I start talking about Santa Claus and fairies, if I start talking about the genesis of the world and the cosmos, if I start talking about God, they all have the exact same reaction, which is, you don't really believe that, do you? And I say, I believe in all of it. Well, but none of that's real, right? I'm like, oh no, it's all real. All of it's real. You just have to come with me on a little walk where we start to define words like real and belief. And what do I mean when I say Santa Claus and fairies are real? 
right? Do I mean flesh and blood? Do I mean you can drive down the road and just sit on Santa's lap? No, that's an actor. We know that. But there's a different sense of reality than the extremely narrow definition that we function under. And because of that, that limitation, we are all a part of the plan that Max Weber came up with in his essay about disenchanting the world. Well, disenchanting the world has led us to a state of mental slavery, emotional slavery, physical slavery. And so really, are we better off for not having myths and legends? Are we better off for not telling folktales? One of the things that we've started doing at night is I'll sit down at 8.15 and all the kids will come in the living room and my wife and the dog, and I'm reading to them. Right now we're reading Beowulf because of course, why wouldn't we? But when we finish Beowulf in a couple sittings, then we'll read Fafnir and the Dragon possibly, or we will read um, the Green Knight and um, Gwen, or and so on and so forth. Why? Because I want to give my children this treasury so that their imaginations are not squashed and that they have a much broader and a much deeper and more profound cosmology and worldview than almost all of their peers. So that as they grow up, they don't lose hope. Because ultimately, if you look around, if you talk to people, and maybe you suffer from this too, I do from time to time for certain, how many people do you know that live in hope? And I mean real hope, not just, man, I sure hope tomorrow's better than today. That's not hope. That's willful ignorance. I mean real hope. Belief that light always overcomes dark, that good will triumph over evil in the end because evil always cannibalizes itself. Evil is a parasite on the good. We forget this. And again, you go back to Tolkien, you go back to Lewis, you go back to the Anglo-Saxon stories, the Norse stories, and what's at the root of all of them? Evil is a parasite on the good. There is no such thing as pure evil. There is no such thing as true evil because all evil feeds off of the good. And when the good says, stop it, you can't do this anymore. Well, one, it's parasitic, so it's going to fight. It's going to thrash around and try and, you know, stay attached to its food source. But if good just turns and says to the parasitic evil, get away from me, I'm going to cut you off of me. I'm going to yank you off and, and burn you. That's it for evil. It's over. That's all it takes. And so the effort to do and to be evil requires so much more energy, so much more time and attention because it is parasitic. It is constantly searching for a food source. And it takes so little to be good. So very little. And yet we are convinced that evil will win because evil is louder than the good for the reasons I just listed. Evil advertises everywhere. It has paid ads. It shouts from the rooftops, buy me, buy me, buy me. I'm going to give you everything that you ever wanted for free. Just vote for me. Just accept me. Just pay for me. Whereas good doesn't advertise. Good doesn't trumpet from the rooftops. It's goodness. It simply says, hey, why don't you come over here and hang out with me? Why? Because it's good. It's not sexy to be good. And it is a struggle to be good because so many people are seduced by and enchanted by, ironically, the very things that they claim don't exist. Good, evil, light, dark, and so on and so forth. 
And so I want to read a little section then from The Monsters and the Critics after that very long preface that I just kind of rattled off for you. But I think it's important that we're all on the same page and that you don't think that I'm just reading these old stories because I am reliving my childhood or something like that or our nostalgia bait, member berries, if you're familiar with Rick and Morty. But in these, I have, in a sense, had Pandora's box opened up to me, but for the good. Because it has taken me back to my childhood. This is true. I cut my teeth on this stuff. Um, when I was in third and fourth grade, for example, my dad was a high school teacher. And the high school was connected to the elementary school by a hallway. And so after I got done with school, I would go to my father's classroom, which was on the second the second floor of the old original school building that had been back built back in the 1800s. And I would just hang out waiting for him because he had to be at the school until four o'clock. He met with students, he had faculty meetings, whatever it might be. And the teachers had to hang around until all the students had exited the building. Well, his classroom was right next door to the library. And so he would just take me to the library and say to the librarian, this old lady, who I'm sure was probably in her 50s, but to me, she seemed like she was ancient. You know, he was doing his thing. And, you know, is there something that she could recommend for me to read? And I've told this story before, but it's one of the most influential things that happened to me in my life. And she asked me what I was interested in. And I was probably reading Three Musketeers or Ivanhoe or something at the time because my grandma or one of my aunts or my mom would buy me these little books that were literally child-sized books, like, I don't know, maybe three by five inches. And they were, the, they were classic stories, but they were annotated down to just like the raw parts, the rare, you know, the raw materials for the, for the story. And they had illustrations in them too. And I loved them because they were the size of an eight-year-old's hands. And I just thought that was so cool because adult books were so big and heavy and unwieldy in your hands when you're that age. And I loved these stories because they fired my imagination and they inspired me to go outside in the woods or in the backyard and to be Robin Hood and to climb trees, to build my own bows, to be Ivanhoe and, and make lances and, and, you know, run around on fake horses, jousting with my great Dane, which by the way, she beat the shit out of me once for that one. <laughs> she had had enough. And so she just knocked me down. She just literally hit me with her paw, grabbed the shield out of my hand and just walked away with it. And so there's a lesson about fighting dragons for you. When you're six or seven years old and you're squaring up with a Great Dane, the Great Dane will win. But this librarian took me to the back corner of the library and she opened up these cabinets that were underneath the radiators. And to my utter shock and awe, there were hundreds and hundreds of comic books. And I was a huge comic book nerd, huge. Even at seven or eight, I was all in on comic books. Every time we went to Kmart, I would beg my mom to let me buy the, the comic books in the plastic wrap where you got three comic books and the two on the outside were always super cool because you could see the covers. And the one in the middle, you'd like try to like bend the, the plastic in such a way so that the other two would kind of bubble out so you could see what the middle one was. But it was always like Donald Duck or some lame one. But every time we went to Kmart, every time we went to the mall, I begged her to buy me more comic books. And all of these comic books that this librarian showed to me were classic stories. They were The Three Musketeers, Robin Hood, Ivanhoe, and so on. They were folktales from around the world, not just Anglo-Saxon and European folktales, but 
Egyptian, South American, Chinese, Japanese, Australian, Indian, African. They were comic books about story and myth from around the world. And they were comic books. And so she would give me a stack and send me home and say, bring them back when you're done and I'll give you more. And the reason that they were under this, this, in this cabinet is because they'd all been published in like the fifties and sixties. And she said, nobody wants to read these things anymore. And so I gobbled those things up. I could read, you know, I would just go home and just sit at the top of the stairs, you know, by my bedroom door and just plow through these comic books. And that's really how I learned the classics uh, originally. And so as a consequence, as I got into my teens, I just transitioned from the comic book to the book. And so by the time I graduated from high school, I had already read all these stories, these, you know, literary stories that we were supposed to read in college. So then when I got to college and we were assigned Three Musketeers, Robin Hood, King Arthur, and so on, I'd already read them. So I just dug deeper into the myth, dug deep into the art and all the different pieces of art, paintings, drawings, sculptures, and so on that artists had done. And it's always then given me a deep appreciation for these myths and legends. And I think that's why even at 52, I've been able to retain my childlike sense of wonder about the world and why I find other people that don't have that really depressing to be around because they have no imagination. They don't want to think outside the box that they live inside of because they see it as a frivolous waste of time or they're simply incapable of doing it. They're, they're not capable of seeing the world from any other perspective than the one that they currently have. And you realize when you talk with these folks, they've always thought this way because this is the way they've been taught to think and they've never questioned it. Whatever the TV says is true. Whatever they see in movies and TV shows, it's entertaining, but it's all fiction. Sports isn't entertainment, it's life. And politics, just the way it is. They have no imagination, no sense of wonder, no desire to go on an intellectual or physical adventure anywhere other than vacation once or twice a year. And that again is just to sleep and to eat and to drink and to pass out and then come back and refreshed. And at least for myself, like I said, I find that a very depressing way to live because the world is such a wonderful place. And I mean that in the most literal sense of the word. It is full of wonder. It is an enchanting world. It's a world full of magic. And most of it is hidden, but not all of it. Uh, let me put it this way. Some of it is hidden, but most of it is right in front of our face. There we go. Most of it is right in front of our face, but we never notice it. We never sit and ponder trees, for example. We never ask the question, where does this tree come from? Why is this tree here? What does it do? How does it do it? Why is it doing this versus what this other tree is doing? Why is my pear tree doing something differently than my elderberry bush? Why is this oak tree doing something different than this maple tree? Why is that not a source of wonder and awe and amazement for us? And again, once you accept this scientific materialist, this kind of atheistic worldview, not even the pagans are safe. No belief is safe because everything is explainable to our five senses if we just put enough effort into it. 
which is simply not true. It's a lie that we tell ourselves. And it goes all the way back to this Max Weber essay on disenchanting the world. And so we kind of live in that shire that's been industrialized by Saruman, that Edenic innocence has been taken away from us, which is unfortunate because that's kind of the way people described the United States when they got here originally. And even those who were sympathetic to the people that were here before we got here, <coughs> excuse me, it was, a, it was a place of wonder, a place of enchantment. And a part of that, of course, is danger. Part of that is darkness because that's a part of the whole package of enchantment and magic and wonder. Oh, excuse me. It is so dry in the upper Midwest now because it's gotten cold. The buildings are shut up. The furnaces are on. And so everything is dry. And so I get out of allergy season and go into dry coughing season. <clears throat> so thank you for your patience and your forgiveness when it comes to me clearing my throat and coughing and all the other things that go with it. And so... Beowulf, the monster and the critics, monsters and the critics, 41 minutes into this episode. It has been thought that the influence of Latin epic, especially of the um, Aeneid, is perceptible in Beowulf and a necessary explanation, if only in the exciting of emulation of the development of the long and studied poem in early England. There is, of course, a likeness in places between these greater and lesser things. The Aeneid and Beowulf, if they are read in conjunction, but the smaller points in which imitation or reminiscence might be perceived are inconclusive, while the real likeness is deeper and due to certain qualities in the authors independent of the question whether the Anglo-Saxon had read Virgil or not. It is this deeper likeness which makes things that are either the inevitabilities of human poetry or the accidental congruences of all tales ring alike. Someone asked me recently if I had ever read Virgil or Homer and all of that. And the answer is yes, of course I have. I read it when I was a child. I've read it on the show before. Go back to earlier episodes where I cover Thermopylae and what else? Xenophon, Cyrus the Persian and so on. I have read all that, <clears throat> but the reason that I dive into this stuff so heavily now is because this is my, this is my heritage. I'm Irish. My wife is Norwegian Finnish. This is our story. These are our forefathers, our spiritual forebears. And I think it is important for each of us, no matter where we come from, that we not be afraid to go back and not be ashamed to go back and learn where we come from. If you're Brazilian, Go back and learn the stories of your spiritual fathers and your forebears and learn from them and let that inform your present. Whether you've never even been to Brazil, that's okay. I've never been back to Ireland, not yet. It's on my bucket list. My wife has not been back to Norway or Finland. It's on her bucket list. But that doesn't negate who you are or where you come from and the fact that the roots of this tree and you're a branch in that tree and so why not trace your roots? Why not be proud of the people that you come from? If you're Japanese, the same. If you're Thai or Congolese, don't be ashamed of where you come from. Go back, learn where you came from, learn about the people and what they did to get you here today. Because again, I think knowing where we come from, that informs where we're going. 
And it's communicated to us plainly but profoundly through stories. And so learn the folktales of the people that you come from. Learn their myths and legends. This is, I think, if we're all honest, our biggest problem with Disney and with movies in general is rather than take, uh, let's say, a Hans Christian Andersen story, which is solidly European, extremely white, right? Because it's Scandinavian. Rather than take that and race swap it and change the story to suit quote unquote modern audiences, there are stories of the ugly duckling in almost every culture on earth. If they were truly diverse, if they actually gave a shit about representation, like honestly gave a shit, they would simply go and tell those stories. And we would watch them. I would watch them. I love Mulan. That's a classic tale and it's not European. It's a great story. There's nothing wrong with it. The story of Mulan is very similar to the story of Eowyn in The Lord of the Rings. Interesting that across cultures, we have this congruence, as Tolkien calls it, of tales. So you don't need to turn Mulan into a Anglo-Saxon woman. We've already got that story. You don't have to turn her into uh, a black African woman, which is another problem I have with Hollywood, is that they think all Africans are black people, which is just stunningly racist, by the way. Which is, again, it's always ironic to me that Hollywood is so quote-unquote anti-racist, and yet so much of what they produce is extremely racist because they just categorize an entire continent of people as being one thing. They do the same thing with Asians. All Asians are Chinese. It's ridiculous. But the reason is, is because they're ignorant, they're mediocre thinkers at best, and they don't want to run the risk of audiences not showing up and buying a ticket to a movie about a princess in India or Thailand or Ghana or Peru because we're not interested in that. No, you tell a good story, especially a folktale or a myth or a legend. It sells itself. There are lots of thunder gods. It doesn't have to be Thor. And if you have good writing, good direction, good cinematography, good effects, good acting, we'll go see that movie 100% of the time. Lately, all my wife and I watch are Korean movies and TV shows. And there's not a single person that looks like me in any of those shows. And yet, that lack of diversity, that lack of representation, uh, doesn't bother us in the least. Because why? Great direction, great acting, great storytelling, great effects. It's just good entertainment. It's a good story. And that's why we watch old shows too. Because that's part and parcel of those old shows. And so this idea that everything has to be race swapped, gender swapped, updated for modern audiences, that in my opinion, and according to the definitions of racism, sexism, and so on that, that I know, um, they check all the boxes. They're not anti-racist, they're racists. They're not anti-gender, you know, gender. they're extremely sexist. Anti-sexist, there we go, not gender, anti-sexist. Because they don't know any other way to tell a story other than to just go into this treasure trove of Anglo-European storytelling and just pillage it for their own purposes. And as a consequence, no one buys the ticket. And good, that's how we vote. We vote with our wallet. We live in a capitalist consumerist society. And the only way that corporations listen to us is if we just keep our money in our pocket and move on with life. I love it. It's fantastic. 
They can make all the dumbass woke Doctor Who specials they want, but we're not going to watch it because you're messing with the formula. And we all know it. And we all know symbolically what the Doctor represents and the TARDIS and his travels across time and space. There's symbolic meaning behind all of it. And they think they can just take that symbolic meaning that literally tells us the, the story of reality. They think they can just change it because they want to, because it helps them identify themselves in the characters they're writing. Which again, they're not doing it for us. They're doing it for themselves because they're narcissists. And then they're shocked when people don't tune in. And then they blame it on toxic masculinity, toxic YouTubers, and so on and so forth. No, it's just your stories suck and you're trying to openly reject reality. And whether people are well-versed in symbology or not, we recognize bullshit when we see it. And that's fine. If that's your thing and you like what they're doing with the Doctor Who specials, power to you, right? I don't like it. I'm calling it out that I don't like it, but that's just my opinion. And that's what I mean. There are things that I listen to and that I watch that other people go, really? That? It's what I'm into. I love ABBA. There. I love ABBA. I love it. I think ABBA is the quintessential pop music band. If you put on Dancing Queen, I'll lose my mind. SOS, I know every word. Most people look at me and go, what the hell, dude? Really? I'm like, I love it. I don't know why. I just love it. I love Neil Diamond. I love him, right? <laughs> that scene from What About Bob. There are some people that, that like Neil Diamond and, and then, you know, my wife loved him. I love Neil Diamond. You put on, again, you put on Cinnamon Girl, every word, baby, every word. I'll crank that. My kids don't get it. I don't understand it. I just love it. And if you don't, that's cool, right? It, again, it's just, that's my tastes. But there's a difference between this is what I like because it's subjectively pleasing to me and I'm going to openly try to reject reality. Those are two different things. There's the symbolism of things that communicate the greater reality and then there is, I just like this because it satisfies something in my brain that just sets off all my dopamine receptors. And so, yes, I have read the Greeks and I've read the Romans and I've read other mythology from other parts of the world. And maybe down the road, we can dig into that even more. I love African folktales, especially Central African folktales. They're wild, man. I love them. They're so cool. I like Southeast Asian folktales. I like the Thai, the Vietnamese the stories from those peoples, Australian Aboriginal folk tales. I love all that stuff. It's so good. And so maybe we'll dive into that in the future because I have an entire book of this stuff from creation through uh, the end of the world. And it's arranged topically. And it's just a collection of creation stories from around the world and apocalypse stories from around the world and savior stories from around the world. It's a fantastic book. So maybe we'll dive into that too at some point. But for now, this is where I come from, and this is the stuff that I am uh, studying, learning early Anglo-Saxon so I can read the old text, the primary text myself, which is very slow going. But we have the great pagan on the threshold of the change of the world in Beowulf, and the great, if lesser Christian, just over the threshold of the great change in his time and his place. The backward view, multa putans, sortemke animo miseratus iniquam. But we all... Now return, we will return now once more to the monsters and consider especially the difference of their status in the northern and southern mythologies. Of Grendel it is said, Godus Urabar, but the Cyclops is God begotten 
and his maiming is an offense against his begetter, the god Poseidon. Oh, by the way, I'm sorry. He carried God's wrath. Goddess Urabar. He carried God's wrath. This radical difference then between Grendel and the Cyclops in mythological status is only brought out more sharply by the very closeness of the similarity in conception in all save mere size that is seen. If we compare Beowulf with the description of the Cyclops devouring men in the Odyssey, or still more in the Aeneid, in Virgil, whatever may be true of the fairy tale world of the Odyssey, the Cyclops walks veritably in the historic world. He is seen by Aeneas in Sicily, monstrum horrendum informe ingens, as much a perilous fact as Grendel was in Denmark. Ermes shippen on veris westmum. Nefneha weis marathon anigman author, as real as Achestes or Hrothgar. And so at this point in particular, we may regret that we do not know more about pre-Christian English mythology. And yet it is, as I have said, legitimate to suppose that in the matter of the position of the monsters in regard to men and gods, the view was fundamentally the same as in later Icelandic. So really what he's saying, right, is that in the Anglo-Saxon, in the Norse, in the Icelandic, there's a connection of the monsters to the God of the Christian faith, the God of the Old Testament, so the Jewish faith as well, in that sense. But that Grendel can trace his origins back to Cain, that all of the monsters are children of Cain, versus the Cyclops, who was created by Poseidon, who walks in history, who is encountered in a specific place in Sicily by Aeneas, and that then there is a distinction, that the one is created by the gods and the other is descended from a creature, a creation of God, in this instance, Cain. And in Anglo-Saxon, in, in their world, especially, again, following, obviously following the Christian um, invasion, <laughs> infiltration of that society, all of this is traced back then to Cain, that these creatures are all the, the spawn of the one who killed his own brother, the one who killed his own kin. Because in Anglo-Saxon pagan society, in Norse pagan society, in Icelandic pagan society, to kill one's kin is the ultimate sin that one can commit against another person. And so for Cain to kill his brother, this is a story that resonates across cultures, across faiths. And therefore, it is a great starting point, a great apologetic starting point when the Christians encounter the Norse, the Anglo-Saxons, and the Icelandic peoples to be able to say, yeah, we have the same story. And you're right. Killing your own kin is the greatest sin on earth. But what's the consequence? Well, the consequence is that those who are descended from Cain, who not only kill their own kin, but eat their own flesh and drink their blood, as it is suggested Grendel did, and all other monsters. And think of all the stories of monsters that you can recall just off the top of your head, where the monster either eats human flesh and or drinks human blood. Because that's what makes a monster a monster. That's not new. That's not an invention of Romero's 
zombie movies. It's not an invention of Bram Stoker and Dracula. This is prehistoric stuff. This is primordial stuff. This is Cain and Abel stuff. And so the distinction is to say for Tolkien, yes, learn your Greek and your Roman myths. They're important. But understand that they're not necessarily the same thing or the forefathers, the forebears of these Anglo-Saxon and Nordic myths. <clears throat> but then in a certain sense, these Anglo-Saxon Nordic myths are homespun and yet share something universally true of all these myths and legends. And so again, at this point, we don't know more about pre-Christian English mythology. But as I've said, legitimate, it is legitimate to suppose that in the matter of the position of the monsters in regard to men and gods, the view was fundamentally the same as in later Icelandic. Thus, though all such generalizations are naturally imperfect in detail, since they deal with matter of various origins, constantly reworked, and never even at most more than partially systematized. For us at present, and this is an important side note, I think, which is this. We think that writing is a scientific discipline. So we're always asking questions of originality, plagiarism. Who did this author steal this from? So, for example, Tolkien took everything, even the names of his characters, from Anglo-Saxon and Nordic mythology. He is the great plagiarist of the 20th century when it comes to this stuff. J.K. Rowling admitted, I stole most of my stuff from Tolkien and Lewis, George MacDonald and others. There's nothing original about Harry Potter. And we think, oh, that's a knock against that person. In the ancient world, this was just assumed that even the monks who transcribed scriptural texts, the text of the Bible, they would make two, three, four copies simultaneously so they could compare to make sure that they had done an accurate job of translating. But the assumption was if they ran into a word in a, in a manuscript, in a text, and they said, this isn't translated right, this, isn't, this doesn't flow as well as it could, it's too wooden, it's too tinny, it was just assumed that you would fix that. It was totally normal to do that. It was assumed that it would be done. And yet to our postmodern sensibilities that everything is, has to be scientific and everything has to be exact and objectively true, which is ironic because we reject objective reality. When we read these old texts, we're constantly looking for this so that we can then point at the text and go, ah, not legitimate. They borrowed from this source or they rewrote this or they corrected that. No, that was normal in the pre-modern world. It was assumed and it wasn't considered a bad thing. It was actually considered contributing to participating in and improving the text of the original author. Because the translators were always asking what was the original author's intent? And how can we supplement that? How can we add to that? And how can we improve that? It was actually considered a compliment to be unoriginal. And yet, within the context of being extremely well-studied and versed in the art of translation, writing, textual criticism, and all that goes with it. I think it's truly unfortunate, actually, that we're so hung up on the quote-unquote scientific understanding of texts. It, to me, again, it, it disenchants the world, and it has allowed postmoderns to essentially say, take the author of the text, throw him or her away, 
take the text and then remold it into whatever you need it to be for you in the present tense. That's the exact opposite of what pre-moderns understood by improving the text. Because as I noted, especially in regards to Hollywood, they're not improving anything. They're making it worse. And the proof of that is more and more people are not buying the ticket anymore. And so if it was just a certain segment of the population, like Tolkien readers rejecting the rings of power and saying, this is disgusting, it's a bastardization, you're shitting all over Tolkien's legacy. If it was just the diehard Tolkien fans, I could understand. But it's not. It's everybody. It's people that just like fantasy and science fiction. It's people that just like a good story that are rejecting the rings of power because it's not only bad Tolkien interpretation, it's just bad storytelling. It misses all of the fine points of classical pre-modern storytelling. So they're not improving Tolkien's legacy. They're not adding to it in such a way that you sit back and say, oh, this is great. This is a, think of Peter Jackson, right? Again, I'm watching, going through and rewatching the making of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And he says it at the front end of the Fellowship of the Ring. As much as it is possible, we will do what Tolkien intended to do with the text. We're going to tell the story that Tolkien told. And where we can't, we're going to put our heads together and we're going to ask ourselves, how would J.R.R. Tolkien do this if he was trying to make a movie of this book? And so that's what they did. And so there's things in the movie that aren't in the book and there's things in the book that aren't in the movie, like Tom Bombadil. Why? Because we got to keep this story going because otherwise audiences are going to tune out. And so the Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, in movie form is almost like an action movie. It pretty much is an action movie. The books are not an action movie. It's, they're an adventure story. They're a mythic story of adventure. It's a quest. And it's long and it's meandering and it goes off in different avenues. And you have p- jumping all over the place when the fellowship gets split up. You can't put that on film that way. People will lose interest. They'll get bored and every movie will be like four hours long. And so what Peter Jackson and his writing partners, and I forget the two women, I'm sorry, I can't remember, Fran something and the other one. Again, I forget. I'm sorry, that's my fault. I apologize. But they would just sit down literally every single day, sometimes while the scenes are being filmed and they're rewriting the script to make it more like Tolkien's vision or saying, like, how do we take the raw material that Tolkien provides for us in all of his books and, and make this story something more for audiences without taking something away from Tolkien, bastardizing Tolkien. The Rings of Power doesn't do any of that. And as much as they say in interviews they're honoring the legacy of Tolkien, they're obviously not because it comes out on the screen. I tried watching the first episode. It's disgusting. Galadriel is... I don't even know who that person is, but she's not Galadriel. <laughs> not, the, not from the books anyways. And so people tuned out because it's not good Tolkien. It's not good myth. It's not good storytelling. That's that. And they blame, again, the fans. They blame men. They blame everything except themselves because they refuse to take responsibility for the fact that they know exactly what they're doing with these stories. They're cannibalizing them for their own purposes. And I use the word cannibalizing on purpose because like Grendel, they're devouring their kin and it makes them monstrous. And I think that's the problem is that the people that write these movies and TV shows and the people that produce and direct them, they're the villains and they relate to the villains. And then they try to make 
the heroes into villains and the villains into misunderstood, sympathetic villains, heroes, basically anti-heroes as they call them. Because that's what the producers and the directors and the screenwriters identify with, the villains. And so they're kind of stuck because again, when you go into the, the definitions and the way that these tropes are played out in story and myth, there's no escaping what evil is and how evil becomes evil. And there's no escaping what good is and how good becomes good. And the more that you push against that and the more you try to swap those two definitions and change that to mean the opposite, the more strongly you're going to get pushback from people. Because even though on the surface, again, we may not understand symbology and how to interpret the symbolism of things, I believe it's actually woven into our soul, the knowledge of good and evil. And this is good and this is what good demands from us. And this is good thinking, good, good speech and good behavior. And we know inherently, we know in our souls, this is bad. And this is what constitutes villainy and evil and wickedness. We all know that by nature. We do. That's why, again, it takes so much energy to be bad because we're acting contrary to our nature. We're acting contrary to the way that God made us. Being good is easy. It's just that the pushback from ourselves, our own selfishness, and others who choose the path of wickedness, they choose the path of villainy, they choose the monstrous path and therefore become monsters themselves. Because I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but I can talk to a person and it doesn't take much time before I recognize I'm talking to a monster. They might wear a human face, but they're monsters. And it is because what they're saying and what they're thinking, what they're doing in a pre-modern context, according to the myths and the legends and the folktales that I read and study, it defines them as the villain, as a monster, because they're cannibalizing and they're feeding off of other people. They're parasites. And that's a very dangerous person to be in a relationship with. If you want to understand how this works, go talk to a recovering drug addict. And so, thus, though all such generalizations are naturally imperfect in detail, since they deal with the matter of various origins, constantly reworked, and never even at more than partially systematized versions, we may with some truth contrast the inhumanness of the Greek gods, however anthropomorphic they are, with the humanness of the northern, however titanic. In the southern myths, there is also rumor of wars with giants and great powers, not Olympian. The Titania pubis fulmine deiecti, rolling like Satan and his satellites in the nethermost abyss. But this war is differently conceived. It lies in a chaotic past. The ruling gods are not besieged, not in at present peril or under future doom. Their offspring on earth may be heroes or fair women. It may also be the other creatures hostile to men. The gods are not the allies of men in their war against these or other monsters. The interest of the gods is in this or that man as part of their individual schemes, not as part of a great strategy that includes all good men as the infantry of battle. In Norse, at any rate, the gods are within time, capital T, time, doomed with their allies to death. Their battle is with the monsters and the outer darkness. They gather heroes for the last defense. Already, before euhemerism saved them by embalming them, and they dwindled in antiquarian fancy to the mighty ancestors of northern kings, both English and Scandinavian, 
They had become, in their very being, the enlarged shadows of great men and warriors upon the walls of the world. When Balder is slain and goes to hell, he cannot escape thence any more than mortal man can. And I think this at root is such a great explanation by Tolkien of why I'm attracted to Anglo-Saxon, Nordic, and Icelandic myths and legends versus the Southern, as he calls them, the Greco-Roman myths and stories and legends. It is this, that the gods are not invested in us. They're not with us. They don't stand with us. They don't die with us. They're not doomed with us. They're aloof from us. They take an interest in individuals here and there, but they are gods and their interest is in being godlike. And the monsters they create are their creations. They don't stand against the monsters. They don't stand against the darkness. Whereas in the Norse, as he says, that's exactly what happens. That is the radical distinction between these two, two sets of mythos. And so this may make the Southern gods more godlike, more lofty, dread, inscrutable. They are timeless and they don't fear death. Such a mythology may hold the promise of a profounder thought. In any case, it was a virtue of the Southern mythology that it could not stop where it was. It must go forward to philosophy or relapse into anarchy. And so the Greco-Roman mythology turned into Greco-Roman philosophy. Otherwise, it would descend into chaos, anarchy. For in a sense, it had shirked the problem precisely by not having the monsters in the center, as they are in Beowulf, to the astonishment of the critics. But such horrors cannot be left permanently unexplained, lurking on the outer edges and under suspicion of being connected with the government. <laughs> it is the strength of the northern mythological imagination that it faced this problem. Put the monsters in the center, gave them victory but no honor, and found a potent a terrible solution in naked will and courage. Well, there you go. As a working theory, absolutely impregnable. So potent is it that while the older Southern imagination has faded forever into literary ornament, the Northern has power, as it were, to revive its spirit even in our own times. It can work, even as it did work, within the Gothlaus Viking that godless Viking who is without gods. Martial heroism as its own end. But we may remember that the poet of Beowulf saw clearly the wages of heroism is death. For these reasons, I think that the passages in Beowulf concerning the giants and their war with God, together with the two mentions of Cain as the ancestor of the giants in general, and Grendel in particular, are especially important. Yeah. There you go. Who's at the center? It's not the gods. It's the monsters. This is the problem with postmodernity that says there is no such thing as good and evil, right? Good people are selfish and narcissistic and self-centered just as much as the villains are. And the villains, they're not really evil. They're just misunderstood. They had a bad childhood. They got done dirty at some point and it turned them down a path of destruction, but they can be redeemed. They can be brought back and reformed. There is no such thing as pure good or pure evil. Well, yes, there is. There is when you put the monsters at the center. When your history 
going back to the beginning to the kin killer, Cain, going back to the beginning of God, hovering over the darkness, separating out the darkness, taking the darkness and creating something within that space and scattering the darkness. When you realize that evil is a parasite on the good, when you recognize that there are monsters and that they are real, and that it is the job of the good man and the good woman to fight the monsters for the sake of their kin, when you accept that heroism leads to death, all of a sudden, these myths and legends become almost too human, too pointed, too on the nose, which again is why I'm so drawn to them. Because in these stories, there's pathos. There is this quest and the sacrifices that are required of one that goes on such a quest. You're going to fight the dragon, you're going to die. Maybe not now, but you will at some point because he who fights dragons eventually will be defeated. They're dragons, dude, and you're a human being. This is not an equal fight. <laughs> so why fight then? Well, because it's not, what in, it's not what's in front of me that I'm fighting for. It's what's behind me that I'm fighting for. I'm fighting for my family. I'm fighting for my village. I'm fighting for my people. If you understand that, you understand Aragorn's character in The Lord of the Rings, because that is the subtext of everything that he does in all of his relationships. It's not what he's fighting against that defines Aragorn. It's what he's fighting for that's behind him. The woman he loves, the fellowship, his friends, the people of Middle-earth. And once you get that, the wages of heroism is death. Because to marry an elephant princess, she's going to bury you and she will have hardly aged a day. And you have to sacrifice that. You have to sacrifice life with another woman who will grow old and die with you. You have to sacrifice that for the sake of love. But do you have the courage and the will to do that? That's the point. Well, if you have something worth fighting for, then you will. If you have nothing worth fighting for or no one worth fighting for, well, then you lack both the courage and the will because what's the point? Then when you see monsters, you run away. You let it be somebody else's problem. Or you look around and realize, like in the case of Nathaniel Hawthorne's short story, Young Goodman Brown, <clears throat> you might be the only good man left. Everyone might be in league with the devil. Everyone might be a monster. And you, in your idealism, in your naivety, maybe even in your vanity, you didn't see it happening until it was too late. And so at least for Tolkien, drawing on these old myths, why am I here? To fight the darkness? To fight the monsters? To protect the village? That's it. That's why you're here. To fight evil with God. Why? Because in the end, when good finally triumphs over evil, and all those who have been gathered inside the walls of the fortress and the gates have been closed, then it's done. Then the war is over. Then we can sit at our mead benches and we can toast and we can sing and we can trade stories. 
We can play our games. We can wrestle, <laughs> throw axes, whatever it might be. But we can't do it until every Grendel in every marsh, in every fen, every Grendel's mother in every subterranean cave, <clears throat> excuse me, every dragon that lies upon their hoard of gold is defeated and killed until every last scrap of darkness has been extinguished by the light. And when we get to that point, then we understand the power of myth and why Max Weber and others have done so much work to disenchant the world and to get rid of myth and legend and to make them into quote-unquote child's fairy tales. Because the truth is they're not child's fairy tales. They're dynamite. They're that potent. One story, like Beowulf or you name it, has the power to change the entire world for the better. You can blow up an entire society with a story like Beowulf, especially amongst people that are disenchanted and disenfranchised and dehumanized. <clears throat> because again, these stories are so human. They're so on the nose that they actually wake us up to reality, which is their purpose. And so of course, for those who are monsters and for those who work in the darkness and are in league with the darkness and want to spread darkness over the face of the whole world, the last thing they want is for people to be inspired, literally to have breath breathed into them they don't want people enlightened. They don't want the light to be shined on them so that they can see. Oh, these are monsters. I'm in the darkness. I'm blind. But there's an alternative. There's an option. That is to walk in the light, to walk in the good. And if all of us who seek the good, if all of us who are willing to wage war against the darkness and die for the sake of our wives, our husbands, our children, our families, friends, neighborhoods, communities, our nations... If we knew how many of, the, of us there were, like I said, we could tear that parasite off and smash it under our feet and be done with it once and for all. And so the darkness, evil, it works ceaselessly to make sure that that never happens and that that story is never told, which is why I'm telling the story. That's why I'm doing this, to hopefully inspire you and enlighten you to go and find your myths, your legends, your folk tales, whether they be these that I'm reading or others like I talked about previously. Go get them. Read them, digest them, memorize them, and then tell them to other people. Share them with other people. Put the book in their hand. Start a, a weekly book reading or a monthly book reading, whatever it might be. Be the storyteller in your village. Be the oracle. Be the scald. Be the bard. Be that person, no matter what your age is, no matter what your gender, none of that matters. Your socioeconomic status, it doesn't matter. Get together and say, hey man, let's read this book. Let's read these stories, right? If you don't have time for a book, read a story, read a short story. There's plenty of them. Read Aesop's fables. You can read like 10 in like 15 minutes. And then talk about the symbolism and what the moral is and what they are trying to teach us about the greater reality of this particular topic. And see how it changes the way that you see the world and the way that you interact and engage with people and your perspective on things. I think it'll have a radical effect if it hasn't already. And so I'll wrap it up there. I've gone on long enough. And yeah, I don't know where I'm going from here. I'm just picking up the breadcrumbs as I go. Like I said, 
for whatever reason, at this season in my life, Pandora's box has been opened up for me to see all of these stories that I grew up reading in an entirely new light. And it's like I'm reading them all for the first time again, even the Bible. And a lot of my friends are suffering as a consequence. <laughs> I apologize because my mind is on fire 24-7. It's all I think about are these stories and the symbolism of everything. I can't watch a TV show anymore. I can't read anything, whether it's a news article or a story or anything. I can't not ask, what's the symbology of this? What does this represent? What greater truth is it trying to teach me? Because for me, it's like drinking from the fire hose right now. And it's a very exciting time in my life anyways, to, to be a part of this and to recognize that the nihilism and the fatalism of the past century and what it's brought us in the present is not adequate for most people. And people are struggling. I see it every day. They have no stories. They have no sense of being, you know, in place and time. They don't know where they come from. They don't know where they're going. They have no hope. And yet by telling stories, by telling your story, the things that you've been through in your life, the adventures you've been on, the struggles that you've survived, the afflictions that you've endured, whatever it might be, the successes that you've enjoyed, those are stories. They're little parables, they're little folktales. Share those with other people. I was talking with a friend of mine the other day at coffee. In AA, we say, you know, we're sharing our experience, strength, and hope with each other that we might, you know, be successful in our recovery and our sobriety. Well, all we're saying is, when I share my experience, strength, and hope with you is, I'm going to tell you stories. Most of the stories are about addiction and what it did to me and the consequences of addiction, but it's also about recovery and sobriety and what I've learned being sober and, and what I've received in sobriety and how can I give that to other people? Well, I can give you the story of my life, to quote Social Distortion, Mike Ness, and the story of my life is one of tragedy and affliction. It's one of suffering and struggle, but it's also one of gratitude and recovery and learning how to love people and how to be thankful rather than being embarrassed and ashamed to say thank you about how to be vulnerable, but yet be strong simultaneously, how to be dangerous, but meek, how to be sober and yet still have to be on my guard for the infiltration of addiction into my life. That's my story. It's one of them. It's not all of them. And it's framed against the backdrop of all of these past stories that take up the same topics. And I may not have had to face a dragon this week laying on his treasure hoard, but I have had to face the dragon of addiction this week and the treasure hoard that it lays on. And I haven't come to steal a cup. I've come to take the whole thing, all of it for myself. Well, in order to do that, I have to defeat the dragon of addiction. And in doing so, I'm going to die. I'm going to sacrifice my life to be clean and sober for myself in part, for my wife and children in total, and for my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren on down in perpetuity, God willing, because I want them to know their father, their grandfather, their great-grandfather, as a loving, kind, dangerous, savage, sober, blah, 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 addict, alcoholic. And I can't do any of those things if I don't put in the work, if I don't, don't devote my time and attention to these things because they don't come organically. They're not just going to fall into my lap. 
And we all know this from experience the older we get. And so if I can share my story with you along with all of these other stories and my experience, strength, and hope and the experience, strength, and hope of the author of Beowulf or of Tolkien or of others encourages you to live sober, to be grateful, to rediscover your faith in God, then awesome. That's fantastic. And I'm glad that I could be a part of it. If it just stimulates your imagination to go off and reread stories that you've ignored since you were a child, awesome. I'm grateful to be a part of it. I'm just grateful to be a part of your life and have you listen and hopefully learn something from this and get something positive and productive and constructive for your life from this. And if you can do all of that in the midst of my coughing and my sniffing and my tripping over my own words, then that's fantastic. Because the reason I don't edit those things out is because I'm a human being and I'm not perfect. And I don't want to edit myself for you. I just want to get in front of the microphone and be honest and be as transparent as I can be. And that's how I do it. And so you get me, warts and all, sniffling, coughing, stumbling, all of it. It's all a part of being a human being, just like you. And so go check out the second Norton critical edition of Beowulf, a verse translation. It's got all these essays in it, all these, like I said, pretexts that are myths and legends. And I love it if you're into it. I highly recommend getting this because I've got now four versions of Beowulf with a fifth one on the way because why not? <laughs> and um, yeah, I think it's great. I think it's great that we can, in our own way, in our own little part, re-enchant the world and kind of flick our noses up at Max Weber and all those who want to steal the magic from us. And so if I don't hear from you again before Christmas, Merry Christmas. It's December 6th when I record this, so hopefully I will. But if I don't, Merry Christmas to you and Happy New Year. And thank you again for all the thousands and thousands of you who listen to my podcast. Um, I can't wrap my brain around that. It's, it's humbling. Let me put it to you that way. I'm definitely not, uh, what's the word? Uh, driven to arrogance by it, that's for sure. I am shocked and stunned and so very grateful that um, you listen. So thank you. Thank you again. Thank you to everyone for all you do for the podcast and all that you do to support me. And with that being said, I'll talk to you again real soon, Space Monkeys. Peace.